0: And this morning, we're turning to Mark chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll just review where we've come so far, because in many ways, Mark chapter 1 functioned as an introduction to the person of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 introduced us to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, long-promised Messiah. Mark chapter 1 introduced us to the mission of Jesus, who came to preach the arrival of the kingdom of God. Mark 1 introduced us to the authority of Jesus, whose teaching came with power. And as he healed and cast out demons, it was unlike anyone anyone had experienced before. And Mark chapter 1 introduced us to the heart of Jesus, who was moved with love and compassion for suffering sinners that he met. It's not surprising at all, I think, that such a man who demonstrated such love and such power would stir the astonishment and also the interests of the entire region. But as Jesus' public ministry moves beyond its initial days, he begins to speak and act in ways that continue to clarify who he is. And it's not surprising that this clarity both confronts expectations and raises opposition. And we'll begin to see that in our passage this morning. So let's read together Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a, a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of the person and work of Jesus. And I pray that it would draw us closer to him this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, certain people cause a buzz. They bring an energy that fills a room. We got a very small taste of that last weekend when Fernando Ortega was here. We've had plenty of concerts here at Westminster over the years, but it takes a musician of that talent and that notoriety to sell out a thousand tickets in a matter of weeks. I think a musician of that humor and humility who can point us to the beauty and love of God to create the sense of anticipation that we felt walking into this room that night, and that sense of joy as we walked out, many of us humming the song that we enjoyed the most and glorifying God for what we had heard. But Fernando Ortega is just a musician. And so while the concert might have given us a small taste of energy in a room, it was nothing like the atmosphere in this little house, likely Peter's house, where Jesus returned at the beginning of Mark 2. We read at the beginning of our passage that a report went around that Jesus was back. And so many gathered together that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now Jesus was there, Mark tells us, to preach the word, the good news of the kingdom of God. But the arrival of the paralytic gives him opportunity to draw attention to the essential point. And the main point that this passage is making, and that is Jesus' authority to forgive sin. But in proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, Jesus runs up against the expectations both of some faithful friends and some skeptical scribes. And I want to look at both parties this morning in order to better understand the significance of Jesus' offer of forgiveness. So let's begin with these faithful friends. If you remember back to Mark chapter 1, we noted that Jesus did not heal every sick person in Capernaum before he went off to preach in other towns, and apparently this paralytic is one of them. Maybe the paralytic and his friends were even among those who were seeking for Jesus that morning when Jesus said, no, it's time to move on, that we can preach to others, if so, we could imagine the the disappointment, maybe even the feeling of a missed opportunity that they might have felt. And we could also imagine how when word went around that Jesus was back, those four friends did not wait around and discuss what they, you know, maybe should do. They went straight to that friend's house. They did not pass go. They did not collect $300. They grabbed their friend and went off to find Jesus. But of course, the rest of the the town was excited too. I mean, last time Jesus was here, he cast out demons with a word and healed all sorts of diseases. I mean, what might he do this time? And so they all rush off to gather at the house as well. And not surprisingly, everyone who is not dragging a paralytic on a bed gets there first. And so when these friends arrive, they can't even get to the door. Now, this is where in our human sense, I would love to get more details of this story now, what was the conversation of those friends when they arrived at that packed door? Did they just want to give up? Did, did, there, did the debate ensue? You know, two of them were like, oh, we can't do anything. And the other two said, no, we got to do something. Who first suggested going on the roof? And did anyone stop to consider the cost of tearing up somebody's roof? Now, we aren't told those details, but it is important for us to understand what that cost was i remember hearing this story in sunday school and thinking oh yeah well you know it's kind of like armstrong roof tiles right you just pop a few off and lower the guy, lower the guy down but no history tells us that at this time a roof would have been made of four layers there would have been beams wooden beams about 3 feet apart that would have crossed the room and then perpendicular to that a layer of sticks and branches and then on top of that some straw or or small sticks, and then on top of that, packed dirt to make it all watertight. And so all turned, we're talking about two feet of dirt, branches, and sticks that had to be dug out. And remember, this is somebody else's house. And not only that, but of course, if you're digging that out, you're going to be raining dirt and sticks down on the scribes who are sitting on the floor and and maybe on Jesus himself. And you wonder, you know what, is that going to make a good case for Jesus to start healing us here? And so how many of us might have considered all that and looked at our friend and said, you know, well, friend, I just don't think it's God's will that you're going to be healed today, but not these friends. They dig through that roof and lower him to the ground and bring him right to the feet of Jesus. What a picture of faith this is. You know, there's a persistence to this faith that believes with such confidence that Jesus is the one they need and they pursue him despite every obstacle. There's a sacrifice to this faith as well, whether it's a, a hit to their reputation or their pocketbook or their time that they'll need to spend fixing Peter's roof. But such sacrifices are insignificant when they firmly believe that Jesus is worth getting to at any cost. And their faith is expressed here in action. One commentator puts it well, I think, when he says, faith is not a matter of what we think or feel. Faith is not a benign willingness to believe that God exists. Faith is a matter of decisions and actions. Faith trusts that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs, and it acts according to that belief. Now, when I consider the example of these friends, I'm ashamed to think of how easily my faith falters. I pray for something once or twice, and then when it's not answered right away, I just give up. Life takes a painful turn, and I'm left wondering if God really cares or how I could possibly make it through. My faith struggles to overcome other people's opinions or my anxiety about how something will play out. I so easily buy the lie that more things or people or freedoms or or lusts will meet my needs just fine. But these four friends fix their eyes with laser focus on Jesus, and they absolutely trust him. And Him alone. And so they are persistent to the point of destroying a roof to get to His feet. I wonder if, as we look at this example, if we might ask ourselves this morning, what area of your life, of of my life, requires a persistent pursuit of Jesus and an absolute trust in Him this week? And I pray that our faith in the Son of God would be as determined and as single-minded as that of these friends. But as good as the faith of these friends was, their expectations still needed to be challenged. You know, the simplest thing in the world would have been for Jesus to look down at that man and say, Son, take up your bed and walk. It's what the crowds wanted. It's what the friends wanted. It's what the man himself wanted. And it would have come with zero conflict with the scribes. But instead, Jesus says the last thing any of them were expecting. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can imagine what my response would have been if I was one of those four. Well, um, you know, thanks, Jesus, but we were actually kind of hoping you'd make him walk. And the paralytic and his friends were not wrong in their desire. When Jesus had announced his arrival and the arrival of the kingdom of God in Luke 4, he quoted Isaiah 61, saying, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." See, the paralytic and his friends were looking in the right place. They had faith in the right person, and their desire was not wrong. But their danger was that they might think that the man's legs were the biggest problem they needed Jesus' help with. See, this man needed to know what Jesus had preached from the beginning, that the arrival of the kingdom of God requires that everyone repent Because whether we are willing to admit it or not, the biggest need for each of us is the forgiveness of our sins. You know, this paralytic could have been like a person who goes to the doctor for help with bronchitis, only to be told that his real problem was lung cancer. And could we imagine if that person said, look, no, I'm just concerned about the bronchitis. That's what's really bothering me. Just give me an antibiotic. That's all I want. Well, We would have said, how foolish. Of course not. We want him to deal with the issue of life and death. And this paralytic needs to know that the legs are are not the heart of the problem. And imagine if Jesus had just healed the man's legs. And that was all. Well, that man might have gotten up and walked for a few years, and then he would have died and faced the judgment of God. But the good news Jesus is proclaiming is that the kingdom of God has arrived to deal with all our need because it has arrived to deal with the heart of the matter. It has arrived to deal with sin, rebellion, and separation from God that is at the root of all guilt, all evil, all suffering, all injustice in the world. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't ignore the man's paralysis. He does then say, Son, rise, take up your mat, and walk. Forgiveness of sins does not mean the man's suffering is minimized. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus' victory means nothing less than the reversal of the curse and all of its consequences. I think it's helpful for us to remember that Jesus' healing power during his earthly ministry was a foretaste of, a promise of, a sign of what will be ours when we are united with him when he returns again and the kingdom of God arrives in full. We will all leap for joy like the paralytic when we, like him, find all our sin and guilt wiped clean and every grief and suffering and pain healed and restored when we are welcomed by the Son of God into the kingdom of god so jesus coming does not mean that these hurts and sufferings are ignored but it does mean that the heart of the problem the root of the problem our deepest need is the forgiveness of our sins and it would be so easy for any of us to lose the full joy of knowing christ Because we lose focus on our deepest need and start to focus on our sufferings or our desires or our felt needs. God, we like this. God, our lives need this. God, if you're really my Savior, I need these problems solved. And if you don't meet these problems, there's no way I could trust you. And before long, we have started looking at all the presenting problems and lost sight of our deepest need God's forgiveness of our sin. And when we lose sight of how desperate the need is, the root of all our need, the forgiveness of our sin, we can begin to miss how unexpectedly glorious it is that that God would become man to save us from sin and to reconcile us to himself forever. J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage said, We must have a priest and a sacrifice between ourselves and God. Our conscience demands it. God's holiness makes it necessary. Without an atoning priest, there can be no peace of soul. And Jesus Christ is the very priest we need, with might to forgive and pardon, tender hearted and willing to save. So may we never rest. Till the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his voice saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Like the paralytic, that is our greatest need, and may we come to Jesus to find it met. But the paralytic and his friends are not the only ones Jesus confronted that day. Jesus also confronted the scribes in their skepticism. Now just to make sure we're all on the same page here, the scribes were not sitting in that room that day as humble learners. They were all sitting there as card-carrying members of the Central Jewish Investigative Committee. See, this teacher is raising a lot of interest. He's gaining traction, and who better than the scribes to show up to sift every word and make sure he's up to snuff? But Jesus doesn't dance around the edges. Jesus doesn't weigh his words to step around any potential landmines with these religious authorities. No, he sets the main issue on a silver platter and puts it right in front of them so that they can look at it square in the face. Jesus confronts them directly with that unexpected statement, son, your sins are forgiven. And I try to imagine what the faces of those scribes might have looked like, perhaps somber with concern or perhaps shocked with horror as they mutter amongst themselves, He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, the scribe's theology is very much correct. Scripture tells us that all sin is primarily an offense against God. And just as I can't forgive you for an offense you committed against someone else, neither can any of us forgive you for your sins against God. Only God can absolve us of sin that is primarily an offense and a rebellion against Him. And of course, their logic was also quite right. You can see the syllogism forming in these scribes' minds. Only God can forgive sins... This man just claimed the authority to forgive sins, therefore this man just claimed to be God. And their logic was quite right. And I think think Jesus' words are even particularly poignant. You'll note that the scribes in their mutterings ask a question of ability. They say, who can, who is able to forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus in his response claims the authority or the right to forgive sins. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He is specifically laying out his claim before them. Because while the paralytic needed to know that his deepest need was forgiveness of sin, the scribes needed to know who Jesus was, who this man was who stood before him. And Jesus' declaration, your sins are forgiven, bring both parties to confront the truth that they needed to hear. Now, I think there's two things in Jesus' response to the scribe that are worth a brief comment. First, in verse 9, Jesus asks the question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? That's a bit of an unusual question. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says, which is easier, between these two questions? And I think his point seems to be that the two things are equally easy for him to say. There's no difference in how easy or hard it is to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. But the first thing, your sins are forgiven, comes with no objectable, verifiable proof. No one sitting in that room knows whether his sins were really forgiven or not. Jesus can say your sins are forgiven, but did it happen? Was it actually reality? We can't say for sure. Which is why Jesus says, hey, I can say either. They're both just as easy to say. But then Jesus says, I'm going to give you this second statement. Rise, take up your bed and go home. And you see what Jesus says. I'm saying this, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Because that second statement was objectively verifiable. When Jesus says, rise, get up, and walk, the lame man rises, gets up, and walks. That statement demonstrates that Jesus' word has the divine power to accomplish what it declared. And so the clear implication is just as his word really made the lame man stand up and walk, so his first word really did forgive the man's sins. Once again, Jesus is using a miracle to demonstrate the truth Of who he is and his offer of salvation. I think it's also worth noting that Jesus, for the first time in Mark, uses one of his favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man. Jesus is going to use this title 14 times in this gospel, but this is the first. And I think it's important for us to understand here because to claim to be a Son of Man is not really a dramatic statement. It really just means you are the Son of a man, you are human. It's kind of like in the Chronicles of Narnia where Peter and Edmund are sons of Adam. It's a title that would likely not really have moved the needle on the scribe's blasphometer. However, Jesus is not just claiming to be a son of man. Jesus is picking up on the prophecy from Daniel 7.13 in which Daniel foresees one like a son of man who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Claiming to be that Son of Man is a significant claim. And Jesus is again giving hint, clue, and indication of who he is. Of course, the scribes should have been the first one to put these clues together. And yet here we find them questioning Jesus. And over the rest of the chapter, we'll see them start to oppose Jesus. And then by chapter 3, we will see them hating Jesus, this one who has come with the authority to forgive sins. So here in this story, we see Jesus preaching the kingdom of God and declaring with power that he has the authority to forgive our sins, highlighting our deepest need and his identity as the son of God who is able to meet that need. And the question for each of us is, will we come to him? Will we respond in faith? to this Jesus. As we conclude this morning, I want to finish by looking at two brief applications for our hearts from this story. The first one comes from the crowds. You see in verse 12, the last verse of our passage, that the crowds are amazed and they glorify God for what they have seen. And we might think, well, hey, that's a pretty good response, glorifying God. And in some ways, that's true. But we should also remember that any one of us is capable of standing up and singing praise to God, especially when things are going well, but that is not necessarily the sign of a heart that has submitted ourselves to Christ, and that is the essential question. In fact, it's worth remembering that almost every single miracle and healing we've seen in the book of Mark so far has been done in the town of Capernaum. And yet, we are going to find out in just a few chapters that these crowds of Capernaum will completely reject Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 23, Jesus gives a particular warning to the town of Capernaum. And he says to Capernaum, you, Capernaum, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. That is a weighty warning to many who had seen his miracles, maybe even praised God for his miracles, and yet refused to submit their lives to Jesus. J.C. Ryle, reflecting on these crowds, writes, Nothing seems to harden man's heart so much As to hear the gospel regularly and yet deliberately prefer sin and the world instead. And perhaps there might be someone this morning who needs the warning that Jesus gave to Capernaum. The warning that few things can so harden your heart and ensure your future judgment before God. As sitting here hearing the offer of Jesus and seeing the blessings that God gives while deciding to live in sin and pursue the world's offers instead of coming to him and submitting to him and following him as your savior and your God. Finally, one last word. Consider for a moment the suffering that the Lord allowed in the life of this paralytic. Now, we don't know much about this paralytic. We don't know how long he was a paralytic. We don't know how he became a paralytic. Was it an accident Was it something someone did to him? Something he did? We never hear him speak. We don't get any window into his heart. But we do see a man who has suffered, who came to Jesus. And what we can see when we read these stories of sufferers who met Jesus is something we don't always get in our own lives. See, in our own suffering, we can't always see the outcome We can't always see how God is going to work in us and through our suffering. But the examples of how God did work through the suffering of others help us to trust him and his character when we are in the midst of the storm. And as we consider this paralytic, J.C. Ryle asks this question. He said, what if this man had never been a paralytic? Would this man have come to see Jesus? If he had come to see Jesus, would he have come with a sense of need or would he have come as another entertained crowd member? Without the bedridden years that made him desperate to come to the Son of God, would he have ever heard those words, Son, your sins are forgiven. And what we have here is one example of how God sovereignly used a period of suffering in the life of this man so that he might know God's love and receive the eternal reward of salvation. Now, last week I mentioned Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And in that book, Ortland makes a striking statement. He writes this He says, It takes a lot of suffering in our lives for us to begin to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Now that's quite a statement because how many times do we see suffering as a reason to doubt God's love for us and yet Ortland claims that suffering is how God demonstrates and proves to us the depth of his love and his care for his people. And while that may be completely counterintuitive to our western avoidance of pain at all costs, I believe if we were to ask fellow believers who have been through deep suffering... Testimony after testimony after testimony would confirm this very truth, that it is in suffering and through suffering that God shows his love to his people. And so as Ryle concludes, let us beware of murmuring under affliction. And let us be sure that there is a wise reason for every trial and that the hand of God is at work in it to draw us even to himself, if we have not yet seen that to be true in our own life, perhaps the example of the paralytic would at least be a testimony that this is how God works and give us reason to trust Him until we see the evidence of His sovereign care for us in our own life as well. As we come to the end of another story here, we come to the end of another story which ends with astonished crowds and a healed man. Another story of Jesus' compassion on a sinful and sick man. Another story demonstrating Jesus' authority and power to heal and to forgive. And my hope is that as we read each story, that each anecdote will increase our knowledge of Christ and our love of Christ and our gratitude for Christ and our worship of Christ, that we might know Him better each time that we might know more and more who he is and all that he has done for all who put their trust in him let's pray our father how we thank you for your word which bears witness to the son of god jesus christ and who he is and what he has come to do how we thank you that he came to offer us forgiveness of sins for all who will come to him in faith. And how we thank you, Father, for this testimony of your sovereign faithfulness that you turned even our sufferings to our good to show your love for us and your care for us. And I pray for any this morning who is walking in the midst of pain and grief and difficulty that they might hear this testimony and come to trust your character Will they wait to see how you will work in and through them for the glory of your name? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.